0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com forthewild for or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world donate. Hey everyone, Francesca here, research collaborator of For the Wild. I wanted to let you guys know that you're about to listen to a damn good episode about beavers. And you might end up thinking to yourself, wow, I wish I could support the work that goes behind these comprehensive interviews. And guess what? I'm here to tell you that you can through our crowdfunding campaign on Drip. You can support the podcast on a monthly basis, and subscriptions start at just $2 a month. So go check out d.rip backslash four dash the dash wild. Thanks everyone, and hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Beavers do it better, and they do it cheaper. And uh, you know we should recognize that they're they are our partners uh, in restoration rather than our uh, our opponents. So so let the road and do the work.
0: The silence is broken by somebody crying. Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone Wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. Today we are speaking with Ben Goldfarb. Ben is an independent environmental journalist based in Spokane, Washington, whose writing has appeared in publications such as Mother Jones, Science, The Guardian, and High Country News. He is the author of Eager The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Well, Ben, thank you so much for the fervor and intelligence with which you write and speak for our incredibly unrepresented beaver relatives. I'm so excited to spend this next hour diving into the largely unappreciated role of the beaver and their expansive history across the landscapes we have come to know.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me and thanks for your your kind words about the book and I'm looking forward to it as well.
0: Oh, great. Well, I would love to begin our conversation in reverence for the beaver as a keystone species. So can you share with us who the North American beaver is and perhaps what fascinates you about beavers and their culture and why you're motivated to take on this endeavor in their defense?
1: Yeah, it's a a great place to begin, so, I think I'll, I'll just start with my, my own motivation. I'll start with the last question first. So, I've, you know, like many people who spend a lot of time uh, outdoors hiking and fishing and camping and, and canoeing, I've always had some appreciation for beavers and respect for their incredible powers of engineering, their amazing uh, ingenuity. Uh, but it wasn't really until a few years ago that I became a, a true beaver believer, you know, a member of the, the beaver cult. And I was living in Seattle and I met a, a biologist. Named Kent Woodruff, who worked for the fire service. He was then the director of the Metow Beaver Project. And uh, what the Metow Beaver Project does is they, they live trap quote unquote, nuisance beavers, you know, beavers that are uh, clogging up uh, road culverts or cutting down people's ornamental trees or what have you. And they relocate those beavers to public land, build their dams, store water, create some fantastic wildlife habitat and, and really do some good. Uh, so it was, you know, it was going with Kent and his his Metau Valley beaver crew uh, to some of the places where they had relocated beavers, you know, seeing these these incredible, infrastructural complexes and recognizing just how much water these animals were capturing and storing on a a pretty dry landscape in, in central Washington. It was really, you know, incredible to see how the most vibrant habitat and the best water storage sites were the ones that were created by this incredible animal. So I think it was it was going out there with with Kent and his crew, these really gifted interpreters of landscape, that convinced me to see the beaver not only as as a one cool animal among many cool animals in North American ecosystems, but actually this again, as you say, a keystone species. This animal really responsible for creating so much life.
0: Yes, absolutely. Beavers are just they are responsible for creating so much life and most of us have forgotten that we are living in a land that beavers initially created. The pre-colonial landscape of Turtle Island, a time in which there were hundreds of millions of beavers roaming the land, looked vastly different than what we remember. So how did these masters of complexity and stewards of biodiversity engineer our shared ecosystems?
1: Yeah, as you say, there's no question, you know, we don't, totally know what North America looked like before European arrival and, and beaver trapping began. But there's no question it was just a much lusher, wetter, greener place. You know, you read these accounts of explorers like, like Lewis and Clark, you know, traversing pre-trapping North American landscapes, you know, and, and they encountered beaver dams as far as the eye could see in every single tributary of the Missouri River. You know, there are explorers talking about crossing the state of Indiana and uh, not finding a dry place to camp for 100 miles because in part because beavers had so thoroughly ponded up and turned soggy the american midwest you know so it's just again it's, it's hard to know exactly what what these ecosystems look like but there's just no question that uh, that beavers profoundly transformed them you know the initial population estimate for, for beavers in North America was as many as 400 million animals, creating potentially hundreds of millions of ponds, you know, and also creating just fantastic wildlife habitat. You know, you think about all of the animals who depend on these beaver-built environments. Think about the, the frogs and salamanders that breed in beaver ponds, and the waterfowl that nest and forage in them, and the moose that cool off in them, and the the juvenile salmon and trout that rear in in beaver ponds. I don't think that we, we don't really think about beaver trapping as being this environmental catastrophe on the same level as the deforestation of the Northeast or the busting of the American Prairie or, you know, placer mining in the Sierra Nevada. But I I think that we should. I think that we should reconceive beaver trapping as this really dramatic, catastrophic form of, of environmental change that had really dire implications for all kinds of species in in North America and Europe as well. You know, there are beavers in, in Europe and the destruction of that animal would have been a similar kind of environmental disaster.
0: Yeah, there was just not any forethought on what decimating this species would do to, like you were saying, wildlife habitat, entire wetland ecosystems. It's really incredible to imagine how much has changed. And in your book, you express that more than any other natural resource, beavers help explain just about every significant American event between European arrival and the Civil War. We should all understand that the economic and geographic expansion of settlers would not have been made feasible without the dissemination of beavers. And along with this ecological loss, there was also a spiritual loss amongst the land and waters and indigenous peoples of turtle island so how are beavers integral to the story of colonization and how can we begin to understand the multiplicity of colonizations that took place during the period that you call the fur apocalypse
1: yeah you know beavers were really this this critical Sort of economic resource when when colonists first arrived in the in the New World, you know, to use one example, I mean, when the Pilgrims showed up, you know, they owed lots of money to their creditors back in England. The only way they could repay those debts was by shipping beaver furs back across the Atlantic to the people who had bankrolled them. You know, so beavers really made the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony possible. I mean, the Louisiana Purchase was in part uh, Jefferson. Wanting to acquire new lands for beaver trapping. the uh, the revolutionary War. I mean, one of the things that sort of angered colonists was the British restricting access to to trapping grounds west of the Appalachians. So, you know, beavers were sort of at the center of so many early events and and conflicts because they were such an important economic resource. you know, and as as you say again, beavers were also one of the things that brought the first white, explorers and traders and trappers into contact with Native Americans. A lot of the diseases that wiped out Native tribes were were spread by European explorers and beaver traders. Uh, So it was this really, really significant early industry and, you know, I think that colonization May have been inevitable uh, without beavers, but there's no question that the fur trade expedited that process of of European westward expansion across North America. As this beaver industry reduced beaver populations and also inadvertently decimated native populations, you know, we did lose so much ecological knowledge about the importance of this animal. You know, one, one example is that the, the Blackfeet Nation in Montana, I mean, they under, because they understood how integral beavers were to creating water sources in the really dry Northern Plains landscape, they actually had prohibitions against killing beavers and considered beavers a really important spiritual deity. The ethnographer Rosalind Lapierre has written extensively about this, that they basically would not cooperate with the, the early fur traders who wanted, to, who wanted them to acquire pelts. Blackfeet refused to do so because they, they knew how important these animals were. So there was all of this, this really incredible ecological knowledge among indigenous peoples about the importance of beavers and transformed those ecological relationships you know a lot of that knowledge was was changed or lost to the detriment of, of everybody
0: it's really heartbreaking to recount this time that's really just fed into the extinction crisis that we're facing now and i think about the furpocalypse and the indigenous peoples you know you had mentioned some of the relations that they were having, but I'm wondering how did the fur apocalypse force indigenous peoples to sever the threads of kinship and subsistence with beavers in order to forge livelihoods based on extraction? Because uh, from reading your book and other research, they weren't always able, the indigenous people weren't always able to fight for the beaver.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm one of many, many people who have who have written about the ways that the arrival of the fur trade sort of transformed and not just the fur trade, but you know, but the really the arrival of European colonists, but the fur trade in particular really transformed the relationship of, of indigenous people with the land from, from one of of subsistence to sort of one of, of capitalism and and extraction. And of course that was Voiced it upon them in, in many ways. As uh, Harold Hickerson has put it, you know, I mean, native people in, in the Northeast, especially, basically became, you know, a vast forest proletariat. Who went out and trapped beavers and other mammals, you know, and returned the furs to white people in exchange for for commercial goods, and that really you know transformed the the relationship of of people with the land. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's what what I think is really fascinating is the the ways in which in the Northeast, where water is relatively abundant and and the forests are pretty dense, a lot of Native people were were very willing participants in the fur trade you know the the white traders showed up they wanted beaver furs they didn't really know how to trap beavers themselves they didn't really have much interest in trapping beavers themselves and they basically dispatched native people to go do their their dirty work for them and return these these pelts and then as, as the fur trade spread west you know as i said earlier i mean lots of western tribes where water is is much scarcer those tribes recognized that these beavers were critical to creating watering holes for bison and waterfowl and other animals refused to participate in the fur trade. And uh, the white people sort of chalked that up to laziness or stubbornness. But of course, that was really a reflection of ecological knowledge. So the reason that, you know, the famous Mountain Men era began, you know, you had you had white people like Kit Carson and Jedediah Smith and Peter Skeen Ogden, you know, all of these sort of legendary trappers who you could see in movies like The Revenant. You know, the reason those white people were forced to become trappers was because Western native people prized beaver for their incredibly integral role in creating water sources, you know? So, so in a lot of ways that, I mean, kind of the history of Western expansion was driven by these tribal cultural practices that, again, related to their ecological knowledge of, of how important beavers are in arid landscapes.
0: That is really fascinating to understand the history of the westward expansion through the beavers and the relationship shifts between colonizers, settlers, and the indigenous people, and just how that manifested into what we're seeing today. Just to take us back, it was an insatiable colonial thirst for dominance and resources and wealth that originally squandered the beaver population. And I think back to a passage in your book that shares the story of George Simpson and the Hudson Bay Company, and Simpson worried about American encroachment into the Oregon Territory, implemented a fur desert policy, you know, purposely leaving no beavers alive in the watersheds they trapped in a means of deterring American fur trappers who were moving northwest. While reading that account, I couldn't help but think, On another statistic you mentioned, that in 2017 alone, wildlife services murdered 23,646 beavers, equaling one beaver death every 22 minutes. So while their motives are different, these two anecdotes represent similar histories of dissemination. And I was wondering if you think these stories share any continuous threads.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that the you know the continuous thread is that we still don't fully recognize how important these animals are. The fur desert policy you're talking about. I mean, that was as you as you said, it was basically the Hudson's Bay Company, which was sort of this this vast. British fur based in Canada wanted to prevent American settlers from from moving to the northwest because they you know, wanted to claim the Oregon Territory for Britain at the time the Oregon Territory was sort of jointly occupied by the, the British and the Americans they hadn't quite figured out where to put the, the border between Canada and the US. Uh, So they basically trapped out all of the beavers there. And actually, the Hudson's Bay Company in Canada, normally they had a a relatively, compared to other fur companies, a kind of relatively progressive attitude about beaver trapping. They were somewhat more sustainable pregnant females, for example. Uh, But in the Oregon Territory, they basically said, you know, let's just kill everything so that the the Americans don't have any reason to come up here. They completely wiped out beavers in, in, in all of the inland northwest uh, which is where I, I live today. So that was, you know, that was that story. And the, the Wildlife Services issue you're talking about, I mean, that's the Wildlife Services is basically uh, a branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's sort of tasked with controlling problematic wildlife, you know, coyotes that kill sheep, for example, or starlings that uh, eat farmers' crops. You know, they kill over 20,000 beavers each year. So over the centuries, our, our relationship toward beavers has has sort of shifted. I mean, initially, it was one of, of sort of Capitalism and economic extraction and resource use. Now the beaver fur trade is, you know, is sort of on life support. The pelt prices is, is very low, but you know we still we still kill lots of beavers as we view them as, as nuisances. So you know our, our motivation killing them has somewhat shifted. We're still fundamentally antagonistic toward beavers in a lot of respects. And you know what what my book is about is basically saying, you know, this animal has always been integral to American history and landscapes and ecology and economies. How can we shift that relationship one more time? You know, we've gone from extraction to antagonism, we go from antagonism to cooperation or or partnerships. I think that's the that's the connection there is that we just don't fully understand how important these animals are um, for so many environmental reasons and how can we steward them as sort of partners in ecological restoration rather than treating as um, a resource to be extracted or a nuisance to be trolled.
0: It's really insane to hear these short-sighted <sighs> strategies implemented by government or settlers, these federal agencies, state agencies, to continue to still kill that many beavers, over 20,000 beavers a year. And the repercussions that we're having with intense droughts and and now going into climate change it's really so frustrating and honestly I'm hearing this all over the world it's just it's nuts like the killing of wolves up in Canada I mean this is just a massive issue with the killings of wildlife and rather than seeing a wildlife habitat being actually something valuable and these wildlife performing some ecosystem service which I actually don't agree with but I also realize that that's how people need to put it into words for some people to care is to put it into these ecosystem service roles. It's just it's just really insane and in the absence of beavers, you know, wetlands have dried up and rich and diverse meandering streams have eroded and vital habitats have been just deadened. So, I'm wondering what the threats are and the long-term implications are of humans misperceiving nature. And how does the theory of shifting baselines relate to the ecological legacy of colonizers?
1: Mm, that's a, a really great and, and complex question. And, you know, actually, I mean, what you said about ecosystem services being, you know, not the best framework to think about, I agree with you, you know, that I, I do think that there's, there's a danger to sort of ascribing value to nature and to wildlife because you know what do you do with the species that that doesn't play uh you know a super obvious role in water storage or or you know wetland creation you're right that it is it is dangerous but i think that the agencies that make decisions about wildlife that's exactly their their mentality you know they're, they're trying to maximize things like water storage and aquifer recharge and wildlife habitat creation in the book i'm you know i i do sort of talk about beavers as a, as a tool almost, which makes me uncomfortable in some ways because I don't, you know, I don't want to be too utilitarian. But I also think that that's a, that's a really effective strategy for reaching people, especially the people who call the shots. You know, as for the, as for the question about shifting baselines, I mean, I think that's exactly, I think what, what has happened uh, over the course of centuries is, is sort of this process of ecological amnesia you know, where each sort of successive generation basically forgets what the environment used to look like. You know, it's sort of like the classic story of today, you know, I go I go catch a, a five pound fish and I'm really excited, but I don't realize that, you know, my grandfather used to catch 50 pound fish. Right. Uh, and I think that, you know, that beavers are, are, they kind of fit into the same paradigm where, you know, we, we don't fully appreciate how rich and abundant North American landscapes used to be because, you know, we just... When the trappers decimated the beaver populations, you know, there were no ecologists and naturalists to record those processes. So we've just forgotten so much about what, what our landscapes used to look like or, or what they should look like. But, you know, at the same time, and I, th- and I think that the shifting baselines thing works in both directions, right? I mean, at the turn of the century in 1900, you know, we were down to something like 100,000 beavers in all of North America. I uh, mean, you know, from a population that used to be as high as 400 million. You know, so beavers had, had just completely collapsed. Now they've actually recovered really well. I mean, now that, you know, nobody quite knows how many beavers are, are in North America today, but it's probably 15 million or so is the best estimate that I've, I've seen. So, you know, we've gone from 100,000 beavers and them being extirpated in, you know, the entire American Northeast to having 15 million beavers. And, you know, now you can drive down like the Mass Pike in, in central Massachusetts and see see a beaver lodge every five minutes, uh, which I think is pretty cool. So, you know, so we've, we've lost a lot. But, you know, beavers are also one of our great wildlife success stories, really proof for how well conservation can work when we commit to it.
0: Fair dawn blushes rosy. To the blue, one more resurrection until I reunite with you. We will meet again somewhere around the message that we serve. One thing you had mentioned is that these federal agencies or state agencies, they are wanting to protect aquifers and keeping resources such as water abundant. So why would they then want to kill beavers? You know, if beavers help with water retention and they support wetlands and ponds, what is their thought process behind killing the beavers to then protect aquifers and Wetlands.
1: Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think that the issue is that, you know, a lot of times you just have government agencies working at, at cross purposes, you know, so like in Wyoming, for example, you know, you've got the federal agency, which is the U.S. Forest Service that manages a lot of, a lot of the public land in Wyoming. Um, you know, they're actually doing beaver relocations and reintroductions in some of their forests because, you know, they recognize how these animals are for habitat creation. But at the same time, we have got the state agency, the Department of Game and Fish, which, you know, is, is permitting the continued trapping of beavers because, you know, they depend in part on the revenue from, from trapping license sales. So you've got, you've got a federal agency and a state that are sort of working at, at cross purposes because they have different motives and objectives. You know, the same, the same deal is true in, in the Northwest, you know, where you've got the National Marine Fishery Service really promoting the use of beavers as a way to improve salmon habitat because, you know, salmon is a really beaver-dependent fish. And then meanwhile, you've got, you know, you've got Wildlife Services, the agency that that sort of controls, quote-unquote, nuisance animals, basically killing beavers because they're clogging up road culverts, you know. So you've got, again, this time two federal agencies who are working across purposes because, you know, their sort of governing missions are very different. So I think that's, you know, I think that's why you get these, these somewhat nonsensical outcomes in a lot of cases, is because you, got, you, you have agencies whose objectives are just completely different. And, you know, they're both tasked with managing this species that just crosses so many jurisdictional boundaries.
0: How does stronger understanding of ecological history, you know, flawed as it may be, combat shifting baseline syndrome?
1: Yeah, that's, that's such a, that's such a good question. I mean, I think, you know, I think that's, exa- that's exactly it. it is we, you know, we just, we just have to get out there and, and experience these landscapes, you know, I think, I mean, to me, one of the great things about beavers is that they're just, you know, they're such, they're such fun, charismatic animals to watch, you know, it's, it's like, I love seeing wildlife of all, all shapes and sizes, but there are really few species that you can watch, engage in behaviors as complex and interesting as beavers. I mean, I was out there a couple of nights ago in, at, uh, along the Spokane River, you know, and I, and I watched a beaver, uh, you know, swimming up and down rapids, going to this willow stand, you know, cutting cutting willow, swimming back through the rapids, carrying the willow, depositing it downstream to be used in construction later, coming back upstream. It was really just you know this incredible, you know, sort of complex, interesting set of behaviors. So that's just, you know, I mean to me beavers are, are just so much fun to watch. And, and I guess that's the, you know, that's kind of the antidote to the ecological forgetting that we've experienced is just getting out there and seeing these animals, seeing also some of the happiest you know beaver memories are you go to a beaver pond and you don't you don't see the beavers themselves but you see you know you see the frogs that are using the the foraging canals that beavers dig you know you see kingfishers uh you know fishing fishing for juvenile trout uh in the pond you know you see moose coming down to the the pond to drink you know you see bear tracks and scat and you know and and scratch marks on trees you know because because bears you know love these amazingly abundant habitats so i think that's You know, that's kind of the secret is just getting out there, seeing beavers and, you know, and seeing all of the life that these animals support and recognizing that once upon a time, there were so many more of these beaver created habitats. They were so much more uh, abundant and, and integral to landscapes.
0: Relationships between humans and beavers are taking on new forms. Despite the rebound in beaver population, their cultural caring capacity is still somewhat tumultuous. What are some of the most common interactions or challenges you've witnessed people experiencing with beavers and how can our listeners be encouraged to respectfully engage with beavers in their bioregion? Are there certain policies that have directly led to the renewal of beaver populations?
1: Yeah. Um so you're right that, that cultural carrying capacity for beavers is is in a lot of places pretty low. You know, scientists talk about the biological carrying capacity being, you know, how many beavers or or deer or bears or whatever a given ecosystem can support, right? I mean how much habitat is there, how much food is there? That's sort of the biological carrying capacity. But then you've got the cultural carrying capacity, which is, you know, how many beavers in this case, will people sub- support or tolerate, you know, how many can be in the landscape before people, you know, start getting uh, angry about, you know, about the, the flooding in their backyard or, or what what have you, you know, and those are very different numbers, right, that biological carrying capacity and the cultural carrying capacity. So I think what a lot of people are trying to do now is to, is to say, well, you know, by solving some of these beaver problems non-lethally without killing the offending beavers, can we raise that cultural carrying capacity? Can we convince more people to tolerate more beavers by solving those problems better, basically? The way that most beaver conflicts are addressed is just trapping out the beavers who cause the problems, which you know maybe works in the short run. But of course, all you're doing is just creating a, a vacancy sign for the next family of beavers, right? I and mean, as long as the habitat is there, beavers are always going to be back in there. And you're always going to have the conflict incur the cost of hiring a trapper and you'll be killing the beavers so you know i think i think one really great solution that's that's promoted as a as kind of an answer to some of these conflicts is what's called a, a flow device and a flow device is basically this sort of pipe and fence system you pass the pipe through the beaver dam or through the road culvert or whatever and you basically move water from, you know, the upstream side of the beaver pond to the downstream side. And, you know, you put little fences around the the, the inflow and outflow of the pipe to prevent beavers from clogging it up. And that, that way you can basically regulate the height of the pond. So you can say, hey, you know, I like having the beavers here. I appreciate what they do, but, you know, I don't want to have to wade through my backyard. You can use one of these flow devices to basically manage that problem while allowing the beavers to remain in place. I think that's the really critical thing is letting the beavers stay put while also solving the problem so you know places that have that have implemented those kinds of solutions have really seen not only dramatic environmental benefits but also dramatic economic benefits right because you're you know you're you're solving the problem you're not having to trap those beavers every year and you're avoiding the damage to the road or whatever property you're worried about so i think that you know when you look at in new england especially in the northeast you know there there are a handful of people who are working on these issues using these flow devices and uh, experiencing really, really great results. So if you're listening at home, I would encourage you to check out uh, a website called the Beaver Institute, which is a, a, a nonprofit founded by this guy named Mike Callahan. Mike is one of the kind of the world's leaders in uh, in flow device installation and, and non-lethal beaver conflict resolution. This nonprofit, the Beaver Institute, has a really wonderful website with lots of information about uh, how you can go about installing these flow devices, finding somebody, a professional in your area to install them for you, and why they're such a valuable technique. So Beaver Institute, check that out if you're listening to this, this podcast.
0: I went to a community beaver talk, and there was, I remember a woman there who said that she really cared about the environment, but did not want beavers reintroduced because she didn't want the valley part of her land to be flooded. And I think there's a real disconnect between saying that we care about the environment, but only if it doesn't disrupt what we think our lives or what we feel like we're entitled to really, I think is what it is. I'm thinking about how do present day beaver reintroductions and conflicts challenge the boundaries of our colonial perceptions of structure, nature, And order, and then also, at what point in time do we see the emergence of cultural caring capacity with regards to beavers?
1: Good question. You know, I think that I I think you're right that there's this sort of this idea, this ancient idea that's, that is just so deeply embedded in, in human thought and consciousness that you know we are sort of we are godlike, right? I mean, you know, we. In the Bible, it says that you know God granted us dominion over all of the, the beasts of the earth, right? And I think that that mindset even makes its way into the mentalities of of environmentalists and people who, who care for the earth. I mean, you see this all the time at, at at wildlife refuges, for example. You know, which are I mean, they're wildlife refuges. Uh, you know, they're places where wildlife should theoretically be safe. You know, yet managers have beavers trapped out of there because they just feel like beaver dam building and pond creation doesn't jibe with the vision for managing this land you know there's this idea that at refuges where where kind of the primary value is creating waterfowl habitat you know it's like well we humans know we know how to breed ducks you know we know how to move water around the landscape and, and create these fantastic duck ponds never mind that you know that that beavers and and waterfowl have been inextricably linked for millions of years, you know, that these rodents have been creating fantastic, fantastic duck ponds. And there's, you know, this amazing wealth of research showing that waterfowl benefits tremendously from beaver presence. Yet, because we, as humans, think we can do it better. We trap out these animals that, that could be um, you know, that could be creating habitat for us for free. And we do it at wildlife refuges, again, which I think is just so bizarre and ironic and sort of indicative of the way we interact with the natural world. So you know a lot of, a lot of what my book is about, and a lot of what beaver believers, the, the scientists who are increasingly working with beavers think about is you know how can we we let the road do the work is sort of the mantra of lots of these engineers now saying okay this animal does this work instinctively right it, it creates ponds it creates wetlands it, it captures sediment it filters out water pollution it does all of these really incredibly valuable services for us and again it does them for free and it does them better than we can do them because it's been doing it you know it's been doing this instinctively um, for millions of years you know so how can we you know sort of step back a little bit and rely on these animals to create some of this great habitat without, you know spending billions of dollars doing it our, ourselves. And uh, you know I love I love that idea of sort of being humble, basically. I mean to me that I mean to me that's that's the lesson of of beaver work more than anything else. It's just humility in the face of of this other species that uh, you know that that does this work so well. Uh, and again, stepping back. And facilitating beavers, allowing beavers to do their thing rather than micromanaging them, I think is a really great way of thinking about about beaver restoration. But, of course, I mean, as you said, that's that's going to require us to rethink what a healthy ecosystem looks like, right? I mean, you know, we're all sort of accustomed to thinking about, you know, the perfect stream that you would see in, like, the fly fishing magazine, right, which is, you know, this – Kind of this merry brook trickling over the rocks, you know, that you could you could like wade right across. And uh, you know, of course, beavers don't create that kind of landscape, right? I mean, beavers create these these broad, sluggish, multi-channel streams that you know look more like marshes or swamps or wetlands, you know. And there's there's dead and dying trees everywhere, and it, you know, kind of smells like decay. Uh, you know, it's not exactly like the picture-perfect. Uh, ecosystem, or at least our conception of the picture-perfect ecosystem. So, you know, we, ha- we have to, in some ways, I think, readjust what we think an aquatic ecosystem should look like and include beavers in that conception.
0: Thank you for that. I think the this human supremacist mindset that guides us to say, oh, we are entitled to this type of stream, to this type of look, to this type of smell of the earth, when that isn't, not only is it not natural, it's actually not the most ecologically beneficial to anyone to be getting in the way of these things. And when you mentioned that in the wildlife refuges that beavers are being killed because of management, because of the way that people want to manage an ecosystem, it's it's really insanity. It's insanity that we think as humans that somehow we have a better idea of how to manage an ecosystem when looking at back at history time and time and time and time and time again, we realize that most every time we get involved with thinking that we know best, we end up destroying so much. I mean, we wouldn't be in the sixth mass extinction at this point if we weren't doing something wrong. So I, I just think this it's really insanity and it's interesting to look through the lens of the beaver as this unrepresented creature this relative who's done so much for us and yet we are still at war with the beaver culturally it's really unbelievable to learn about and gosh i just wonder do you foresee a time when beavers will be able to live out their lives autonomously
1: Mm, that's a good, that's a good question. So another sort of crazy way in which, we, in which we manage beavers that I think gets at your question a little bit is, you know, is the, is the relationship between beavers and salmon, right? I mean, we, you know, we know that beavers create this amazing habitat, especially for juvenile salmon, which, you know, which need these nice slow water ponds and side channels and eddies and pools to, to shelter in, which has been shown time and time again that, that beavers are really integral to salmon production. Uh, yet, you know, there's still lots of beaver trapping, beaver dam removal, basically to facilitate salmon passage, right? The idea is that somehow fish don't know how to get by beaver dams, you know, because, yeah, <laughs> I don't, you know, this, I guess there's, this, there's just this forgetting that, that, of course, historically we had hundreds of millions more beavers and millions and millions more salmon as well. And that, you know, there's this, there's this ancient evolutionary relationship there. Of course, I mean, of course, salmon know how to get past beaver dams. And it's been shown time and again, that fish actually are, are very skilled at navigating beaver dams. And, and, uh, you know, most of the time they aren't, they aren't barriers at all. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of another indication of, of how, how, again, we don't recognize these ancient relationships and you know we sort of think that well what the salmon need is is beaver removal not recognizing that of course these two species are really well linked I and mean, as for whether you know beavers will will ever autonomously live out their lives i mean i think it i think it depends on where you are you know i think there i mean there there are lots of places now that you know that have a, a sort of a more a more enlightened beaver consciousness, um, for lack of a better term. You know, places where these animals are being live trapped and relocated instead of just killed on site, and where we're, lo- where we're where we're using flow devices to solve some of these conflicts non lethally. Um, so you know, I think there's no question that that we are making progress on the on the beaver front, and that you know there is this amazing sort of groundswell of of support for beavers and recognition of how important they are you know, again, I mean, that's, I think that's more, that's still more rule than exception. You know, there's still lots of, of beaver trapping and and destruction and, um, the overall trend for, for beavers is certainly good, but, uh, you know, it's just very spatially patchy. You know, there are lots of places again, where, you know, these, these animals are still not really welcomed and, and embraced on landscapes. So I hope that changes. I hope it continues to change. And, uh, you know I hope I hope that, that my book can can play some small role in facilitating that change.
0: I've been up in Alaska for the last few months following salmon, the story of salmon, and what's happening to the salmon. So I'm happy you brought them up. And I also wanted to say that I've been on so many undammed rivers in the past few months. And the way that a river lives is continuously changing. It's flowing and fluxing and taking down uh, walls and creating new sedimentation and moving a lot of. Of earth with it as it flows and changes its course and most of the time in the lower 48 we really manage rivers to be so stagnant in a sense you know with dams and erosion control and concrete it's really crazy like that is not how a river has been surviving uh, before industrialization and then mixing that in with the beavers and the salmon and then how that honestly affects everything downstream, including the orca, which has been a big topic for people lately with so many orca deaths. So it, it, I just really think about all these complex interweavings and how the beaver is a linchpin in this system. And to not acknowledge that is, again, just, <laughs> I want to keep saying insanity because I feel like that's been um, a theme word for me in the last few months, listening about the salmon, how we are pushing the salmon to complete collapse even in places that still quote unquote have healthy runs like this is insanity and 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 i really want to talk more about the salmon and the beaver relationship because here at for the wild we hold our salmon can incredibly close to our hearts so i'm wondering if you can share with us how endangered salmon and steelhead runs depend upon the environmental influence of beavers and how does the proliferation of beaver dams aid in the recovery plan of Chinook, Chum, Sockeye, and Coho salmon, as well as other federally protected fish in places like Oregon?
1: Good question. Yeah, I mean, as, as I said before, there's you know there's this really closely linked evolutionary history there between beavers and salmon. You know, I mean, I mean, think about being a a juvenile salmon, right? You know, you're you're the length of a single finger, and and if you're in the the main river in the main channel, you know, you're just going to get blown downstream, right? You're not strong enough yet to to really, you know, stay in the main current. So what you need is you you just you need a slow water refuge, you need a deep pool or a, a you know a backwater or side channels, especially are really important. And you know some some fish need that more than others. You know, for for coho salmon, for example, you know coho juvenile coho spend longer in stream than than other fish. They they migrate to the sea later in life. You know, so for them it's especially important. You know, they really need that good overwintering habitat because they're just spending longer in the stream. So that you know so they so they're especially dependent on beavers. And you know, again, I mean it's just been shown over and over again that this this kind of, of rearing habitat is so important for juvenile salmon. But what what's happened, you know, I mean what happened historically when we trapped out beavers is we, we lost so much of that good habitat you know, what happens is when you've got a nice, healthy, beaver-rich stream, you know, all of those beaver dams are basically acting as speed bumps, right? They're slowing down water, they're spreading it out, they're pushing water onto the floodplain so that the water can sink into the ground and and recharge uh, groundwater tables, and then all of that water basically re-enters the stream downstream, right? I mean, you've got, you know, beavers, they create this great, you know, what scientists call a, a hyperreic exchange, you know, where you've got groundwater and surface water mingling. Uh, And and that groundwater recharge is really important to keeping water in streams late into the summer and fall. But what happens when you trap out beaver is, you know, is that you've got, you don't have those beaver dams slowing the water down anymore. You know, you've got really rapid erosion. You've got down cutting, you know, as the stream sort of gouges into its bed. And as the stream, you know, cuts further and further down, you lose that connection with the floodplain. You lose that really important sort of water spreading out and, and soaking into the ground and recharging that groundwater. And the result is is streams that actually go dry because they just don't have that groundwater trickling up, bubbling up through the rocks anymore. Uh, and you know, and, and those streams basically lose water, and, and you lose you lose fish. Of course, I mean, I was just on a, I was on a stream in Western Washington a couple of weeks ago. Early in the week, there was water in the stream, and you could see little pockets of juvenile coho. And you know that was on a Tuesday, I think. And then I came back Friday, three days later, and the stream had just completely dried up. And there were just little little pockets of of dead fish in the mud where there had been water a few days earlier, um, because you know that stream has just been so degraded, in part because a lack of beavers. That uh, you know it just couldn't it just couldn 't sustain that groundwater recharge anymore, and you know all, all of the fish in that stream died and it lost its value as rearing habitat for juvenile salmon, so you know getting beavers back in these streams, creating that complex slow water habitat that fish need, uh, and facilitating that groundwater recharge and that that sort of Groundwater surface water exchange that's so important to keeping streams hydrated, you know, in the American West. I mean, that's that's really critical too. So no question, there's a, a really strong link between beavers and salmon. There, there's a very good reason that you know that lots of federal agencies now consider beaver restoration an integral step in in salmon recovery.
0: Gosh, that's so sad to hear about the creek drying up. And you know, a lot of people still think that drought is only affecting California or Colorado or New Mexico. And it's just not the truth. I mean, I've driven from California up to Alaska and drought is affecting this entire Northwest. I mean, and and beyond, beyond even these states in British Columbia. So this is a major problem. Creeks are drying up even in places that are the rainiest places on earth. So I feel like Implementing beaver restoration should be mandatory at this point. I mean, we are in many ways in a crisis. We're in a state of emergency with species die-off, with collapse of entire fisheries. I mean, this is real. I know, I, I know, I'm speaking to somebody who knows it, but I've just been in it every day for the past, you know, almost three months, and and I feel like I'm just totally frustrated and outraged, and and I just think about. Beavers, you know, they, the beaver ponds, they store carbon and excess water runoff. And beaver dams are natural filters for sediments and toxins and agricultural pollutants. So, I mean, they they do so much. And, you know, you had talked about, you've mentioned a lot, and I've been trying to visualize as you've talked. But I'm wondering if you could help us visualize a really degraded water system. And a water system that doesn't have beavers, perhaps it's drying up, perhaps there's been massive erosion what would be the process of bringing beavers back into that ecosystem? And what would be some of the first changes we'd start to see, you know, after maybe a year or two years?
1: Yeah. So th- I think the first step is, is you have to get beavers back there. And that's really challenging because it's, it can be hard for beavers to reestablish in some of these systems, right? I mean, if you've got a stream that's deeply incised, that's downcut and is sort of trapped within its banks... And is basically turned into this, you know, this straight fire hose. Basically, I mean, that's a really hard place for for beavers to establish, right? I mean, their dams get blown out; they can't really build or create nice ponds because they you know, they, you can't spread water onto the floodplain if the stream is trapped deep within its banks. So, so it can be really hard for beavers to come back into some of these degraded systems. So, so the first step I think is you you got to get beavers back in there. One solution that works well in some cases to to do that. Is installing these things called beaver dam analogs, which are basically basically human-built beaver dams. They're sort of like beaver starter kits where you pound a few posts into the stream bed, leave a couple of willows in there, and that basically gives beavers a you know a more stable starting point that they can build off of. Uh, so I think that's you know, I think that getting beavers back in there, often through the use of, of beaver dam analogs. You know, in some cases you can you can get beavers back in just by changing the land use. You know, in, in Nevada, for example you know, in places that, that were really heavily grazed historically by cattle where there was no vegetation for beavers to eat, you know, there's been a, there's been a lot of, of beaver restoration success just by changing some of the grazing patterns, you know, by, by reducing some of that grazing pressure, you get streamside willows growing back and beavers have been able to, to follow those willows and, and show up and build and do their thing. So I think that's, that's a really critical part of the, of the process is just getting the land use right making sure there's enough vegetation there for them to eat and build off of. And you know, if necessary, using these beaver dam analogs to sort of facilitate or direct their reestablishment. Once they're back in there, one of the cool things about beaver-built habitats is how dynamic they are. I mean, this this fantastic cycle that you go through, right, where beavers show up, they build a dam, they create, they create a nice, big, deep pond. In that first phase, that pond is, is a really good environment for fish for lots of, lots of waterfowl, you know, and then what happens gradually as sediment sort of filters out in the pond and, uh, you know, the pond begins to fill in, it you know, sort of becomes uh, more of a, a wetland type environment that's, you know, that's really great for wetland dependent plant species and, and, uh, and butterflies in many cases, you know, re- rely on the sedges that grow in beaver ponds. It's great uh, breeding habitat for amphibians. And then gradually as, as the pond fills in further or beavers leave the area, uh, you know that goes from a, a wetland to more of a, a, a lush wet meadow, which is really great habitat for for moose and and other ungulates and bears, and you know eventually it, you know it begins to reforest a little bit, and and then the cycle starts again, where you know where where now the the beavers show up again, and, and maybe the the food resource has regrown enough for beavers to reestablish in in a site that they had to leave. So I think that's that's one of the amazing things about these beaver built habitats is they go through this incredible dynamic cycling where at, at each phase in the process, they're creating great habitat for a different set of species, you know, from these these sort of pond uh, and deep water dependent species to wetland species, to wet meadow species back to forest. And I think that's I think that that cycle is really, really cool and incredible. But of course, to get there, you know, you have to you have to change land management enough to allow the beavers to return.
0: It's amazing just to hear the um, domino effect after beavers come back to an area, and just listening to all of the different creatures that can then find forage and home again. And I even think about how nearly half of endangered and threatened species in North America rely upon wetlands. So again, they need the beavers to come back. I really love imagining what can happen if we just support them. And another thing that you'd mentioned of how beavers support us is through climate change mitigation. And I want to hear a little bit more about that. You know, how does that actually work? How do beavers affect climate change?
1: Yeah. So so there's sort of, I mean, there's these great climate adaptation strategies, right? I mean, especially out here in the West, as the climate warms, more and more of a precipitation is falling as rain rather than snow, right? And what happens when when it falls as rain is it just runs off the landscape immediately, and it's basically lost, you know, to to productive use, to human use. What's so valuable for us is, you know, is that that snowpack, which gradually melts over the course of the, the summer and fall and basically keeps streams hydrated throughout the entire year. So you know of course as, as we as we lose that snowpack, you know, we're losing that great gradual time release runoff. That's you know that's causing really, really big problems not only for for farmers and, and uh, ranchers, but also for, for, for fish and wildlife. So you know getting beavers back in some of these systems uh, storing some of these some of this water you know creating some some groundwater recharge and and uh, you know keeping these streams hydrated is is critical important in, in a lot of places you know and beavers aren't I mean look they're not a silver bullet obviously they're not going to you know solve these drought problems by themselves but you know they are one very valuable tool in the toolbox and also one really cheap tool in the toolbox you know they're this they're the solution we can implement for not a whole lot of money so that's the that's kind of the adaptation piece I mean I mean the climate change mitigation piece, you know, is that we know that beavers store huge amounts of, of carbon uh, in their ponds and wetlands. You know, we, we know that wetlands in general are this, you know, this this amazing and vastly underappreciated carbon sink, you know, this this site of carbon sequestration as you know all of this you know, all of this organic matter just settles out in ponds and wetlands. You know, they're just storing huge amounts of carbon. And you know what happens when when beavers are removed from a site is you know the, all of all of those carbon-rich sediments are, are exposed to the air and and uh, you know you basically release a lot of that carbon and you know the, these beaver-built habitats go from being carbon sinks to to carbon sources. So that's I mean that's one of the reasons that you know it's so critical that we get back get beavers back in these systems and keep them there because they're they're capturing huge amounts of carbon and they're releasing that carbon if they are eliminated from the system, and the, the ponds dry up, and all of those sediments are exposed. Um, so, you know, beavers have a, a potentially really significant role to play in carbon sequestration and, and climate change mitigation, if we let them play that role.
0: Amazing. Well, goodness, I'm so appreciative of the time you've spent and clearly the heart that you've put into this project. So Ben, thank you. And please feel free to close out this conversation in any way you see fit i've definitely could probably talk for many more hours with you but this has been such a good place to start and really have our listeners start to understand the complexities of what's happening to these magical beings
1: yeah you know i I, I mean i would finish the conversation the, the same way that that my book finishes which is you know which is let let the rodent do the work you know as i as i said earlier i mean You know, we're not, we're not going to solve our environmental problems with beavers, but we're going to put a dent in them for sure. And, you know, and we can only do that by being humble in the face of this, this really remarkable rodent and, you know, letting it do some of the restoration work that we spend so much money attempting to do and do very imperfectly. Beavers do it better and they do it cheaper. And, uh, you know, we should recognize that they're, they are our partners uh, in restoration rather than our, uh, our opponents. So so let the road and do the work.
0: Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was by Fountain Sun. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible podcast team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our writer and research collaborator, Francesca Glassbell, our media director, Molly Lebo, and our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. If you haven't rated us on iTunes, please do so. Also, sign up for our newsletter on our website. And don't forget about contributing to DRIP at d.rip/slash/4-the-wild. All right, thanks so much, and until next time.